We would like to thank FirstNet for their support of this podcast. This is Key the Mic, a podcast on the leading edge of fire service innovation. I'm your host, Inanna Hinky. Join me as we unpack today's emerging issues and the minds and tools at work to solve them. When I first started, I go, wow, should I do all nine of my fire stations at once? Or should I break it apart and take it a little bit at a time? That's not the question. The question is, what do we need and why? And if you can communicate that effectively, what we found is our citizens rally behind us like we've never seen. What happens when nine out of your 10 fire stations need structural improvements or outright replacement? This is the question Chief John Oliver of Central Kitsap Fire and Rescue faced in his third year as head of the department. Chief Oliver's career began in 1984, and he spent 31 years in Oregon's fire service before retiring from Clackamas Fire District No. 1 in 2015 to begin his second career in Washington. Before becoming Chief of Central Kitsap, he served as Deputy Chief of Operations. Chief, you've had a long career with many accomplishments worth celebrating, but you're here with us to talk about one specific accomplishment which arose out of this question. What do you do when 90% of your fire stations need structural improvement? And more fundamentally, how are you going to foot the bill? Tell us a bit about how you got to that point. How did this question arise in the first place? Well, I think first off, this isn't new to a lot of fire departments in the United States. Our product that we produce is a firefighter, and that is about 80% of my budget. In order to fund major capital projects, often we have to go to the voters. The priorities of emergency response generally supersede that. So what we found is that at one point we stopped and looked around, and as you said, nine of our fire stations were in various stages of disrepair and unrepair. And through additional mergers or consolidations, we inherited buildings that were very substandard. So we really had to embark on a plan to make a wholesale change to right the ship for our facilities. Was there a formal process that you went through to take stock of what needed to be improved? If you just do a quick Google search or you reach out to the Western Fire Chiefs or the International Association of Fire Chiefs, you can find a lot of information on GIS studies, travel time studies, population growth, where stations should be. We hire an architect to do a capital facilities plan. Those tools are really accessible to a lot of fire departments, and that really was the easiest piece of the entire puzzle. Although it was laborious, it took us almost three years to get a comprehensive facilities plan completed. I believe it was one of the more important things that we did on this journey because one, you know, you never want to go to the voters and be unprepared. And then you never want to promise something to the voters that you cannot deliver. So even though the comprehensive facilities plan is somewhat familiar to the fire service, it was very, very important as we began this journey. When you had the finished plan and the architect had taken a look at all of your buildings, how did they break the news to you that so many of your stations were lacking? And then how did they determine the overall cost to fix them? That's what's interesting. There was nothing in this plan that surprised us. 
So really what it did is it substantiated the problems and the challenges that we had. When I would do presentations to chambers of commerce and rotaries and alliance groups, to editorial boards, those questions about, Chief, I know you think the fire station is bad. Who else thinks it's bad? And I could show civil engineering and geotech studies to really show, yes, these fire stations really need to be replaced. Do fire stations that are in need of updates affect the day-to-day operations of what you do? Or is it more of a, we know that this is going to be a problem down the line? They definitely affected the day-to-day operations. As I alluded to a little bit earlier, my agency is a conglomeration of multiple small fire districts that have come together over time. Many of those fire stations were placed by the autonomous little fire district where they thought it was a good spot or somebody donated some land. So when you actually come together to be a big fire department of 10 fire stations, you find about half of them are in the wrong place. We really had to relocate four of our 10 fire stations to better serve our citizens. Additionally, we're experiencing rapid growth. I've gone from four career fire stations to five career fire stations And we're expanding our career fire station footprints every year, and we'll go to six and seven. And those stations that were traditionally volunteer stations don't have sleeping quarters, kitchen facilities, proper bath facilities. So we found that we wanted to expand. We had the personnel. We literally couldn't move into the stations that we needed. Last is we are truly a a multi-gender diverse workforce. And the traditional fire stations don't accommodate all of the needs of our very diverse workforce that we continue to evolve into. So response times, living quarters, and gender neutral, diverse accommodations were everyday challenges and even our challenges today as we're building some of these stations. You received a total dollar amount of just under $60 million for this project to move forward. What did that mean for the Central Kitsap community? Well, we're blessed with a community that holistically supports our fire service. And we take that seriously. To ask our community to do a wholesale change of almost every one of our facilities was a significant ask. But that ask begins years before the ballot lands. Exemplary customer service, compassion for my employees in in our citizens' times of needs, being there when our citizens need us in their most dire times really, really sets the stage for the big ask. I mean, it's $60 million. It's the second largest capital facilities fire bond in the state of Washington history in the middle of a pandemic, right in one of the middle of biggest economic freefalls in American history. And our agency had to have a lot of fortitude to continue on a path and know that we had done our homework. We really do need the facilities to better our community safety and to message that we're blessed with citizens that holistically support us. You were confident, it sounds like, that the support was there. You just needed to garner it and to secure it in some way. How did you approach formally asking your community to support this bond? 
Well, you, you post an interesting statement. I'm not sure I was confident. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this was a huge ask, but this is really at a turning point of a fire chief's career because there was so much doubt, so much unknown. I, as a fire chief, had to really stand up and bring the organization and get the emphasis behind this. Probably later on, we'll talk about it, but labor was one of my biggest partners. So all the foundation that we've done for the capital facilities, that's easy stuff to find. Next was going to the ballot. Fire chiefs generally cut and paste, right? I have to go to the ballot for EMS levies and apparatus bonds and all that stuff. And it's easy for me to go into my files and just cut and paste that ballot language and titles and all that stuff, and then go forth in the traditional way. But this time we, we didn't not only get out of the box, we threw the box away. Can you give me an example of how this was different from what had been done in the past? We hired a public affairs firm and the public affairs firm helped us craft key messages. And these key messages literally took us months to develop. Those four messages then were used in every printed document, every spoken word, every electronic media, every editorial board. It was a very laborious process. Often the fire service, we use acronyms and approaches that may not be known by the layperson. One of the things the public affairs company helped us on is messaging things in the layperson's terms and not using fire service acronyms. Were those four central ideas the main key points that you wanted to defend this ballot measure? These are what we need. Is that a correct interpretation? Yeah, they were really things like one of them focused on firefighter health and safety. The other one focused on community safety, you know, getting stations closer so we can get to you closer. We're on the Cascadia subduction zone. So it focused on resiliency of our facilities. And if they are having an earthquake, all 10 of our fire stations were slated to fall down. They were really key areas of public concern. Unfortunately, not all departments have the budget to hire outside help, such as a consulting firm. What could those departments do to improve their chances of passing a ballot measure without spending a lot of money? One of the lessons that I learned is leveraging my human capital I have in my department. I'm blessed with a great public information officer, an executive assistant that has a degree from University of Washington, an electronic media interpretation finance director. When we had all of what's going to cost a citizen, he's a CPA. I, I really leveraged our internal human capital. The deeper I dug, the more I found I found savants out there in my fire stations that can analyze data and build GIS studies. It was fascinating what we could do together. Additionally, working closely with my IFF union and the IFF's ability to query voters' statistics, and actually, you know, they can do much more. They can actually campaign. All we can do is message. So garnering community partners. Our school district here has been very successful and well-supported. And I went to our school district and met with them and say, okay, how do you pass a bond to build a new high school? You don't need to go out and hire a public affairs firm. You can reach out to those people in and around you that are successful, leverage human capital, and get some partners. 
we were just contacted by another fire district the other day and said, help. My staff jumped on an electronic platform and we just donated 30, 40 minutes, which was nothing. Now electronic meetings, they couldn't really afford hiring a public affairs firm like we did. But just in 30 or 40 minutes, they were going, this is great stuff. Thank you very much. So put my email out there and our contact information and we can reach out and help anybody. You spoke about how this was a different and more perhaps innovative process compared to what had been done with ballot measures in the past. Has this whole experience changed how your department approaches other issues? Definitely. You know, right on the heels of that fire station bond, we had to pass an EMS levy. And the EMS levy was a tax increase. We really took that structure we built for messaging our ballot and just applied it to the EMS renewal. And again, in this face of tax scrutiny and concern, we got a significant ballot pass margin. And what's fascinating is that our fire district right next to us that did fail their bond using a traditional approach, they came to us and they used our recipe and they passed their EMS levy right next to us with the same margin. So it's a process that's the challenge of many fire districts. We have to go to the ballot. What we did is we basically threw out the old cut and paste. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners today? This was a great learning opportunity for our organization. And even though it was a formidable challenge, and I'll be honest with you, as the fire chief, I was out there on an island for quite a while. But as the organization and the community really came behind the whole idea and the concept, the community began to look at it as an investment in the community and an investment in our future. And it was fascinating in the Chamber of Commerce and the community councils and all of those venues that I went to, I began to hear the community and our organization saying, we are investing in our future. It was a big ask. It was a wholesale change. The size of it wasn't the question. When I first started, I go, wow, should I do all nine of my fire stations at once? Or should I break it apart and take it a little bit at a time? That's not the question. The question is, what do we need and why? And if you can communicate that effectively, what we found is our citizens rally behind us like we've never seen. The statistics really are astounding. Again, you said it was the second largest facilities ballot in the history of Washington State, and it passed with a 75% approval rating, which is amazing. I only wish more people in this day and age could agree on such important topics as enthusiastically as they agreed to support the future of your fire department. We're about out of time for today, but we would love to have you back to discuss what happened following the passage of the bill and how it all got implemented. So for all of our listeners, stay tuned for the next great conversation with Chief Oliver. And thanks for joining us, Chief. For more information about our podcast and today's episode, visit our website at keythemic.org. That's key, the M-I-C dot O-R-G. 